Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We concentrate today on two forthcoming elections, the November midterms here in California and the second round of Brazil's general election on October 28th. Gustavo Ariano joins us from the OC. He's the author of Ask a Mexican and Taco USA. Gustavo wrote an op-ed this week in the LA Times and says that the spotlight may be on the OC, but Democrats are building for the long haul in the Central Valley. In other words, he explains why winning blue in Bakersfield and Fresno is even more important than in the Republican Orange County. And he says it could be a template for winning back small towns and rural America. We'll get his take. We then talked to Matthew Richmond in Sao Paulo, where he's doing research on the favelas and urban periphery about the October 28th second round of the general election in Brazil. The ultra-right-wing Jair Bolsonaro of the Social Liberal Party is ahead of the PT's Fernando Adage, Lula's in jail. And we're going to talk to Matthew Matthew, about Bolsonaro's formidable base among the poor, not just the more traditional base of support, the elite and the wealthy, and ask why Bolsonaro has been able to win support of these constituencies, even though his economic policies will hurt them. All this on Jacobin Radio in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Gustavo Arellano with us. He's the former publisher and editor of Orange County's Alternative Weekly, the OC Weekly. He used to write a column called Ask a Mexican. He turned it into a book of the same name. And you should go and read it. It's hilarious and it's also incisive and I use it for teaching. And he also wrote a book called Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, and another one about Orange County. And he's been writing about everything Latino since uh, most of you were in elementary school. What else should I say? Gustavo uh, is a third cousin once removed of actress Jessica Al. That's really his uh, claim to fame. But this week, Gustavo wrote an op-ed in the L.A. Times and says that the spotlight might be on the O.C. or Orange County, for those of you who don't know. But Democrats are building for the long haul in the Central Valley. In other words, why winning blue in Bakersfield and Fresno and along Highway 99 is even more important than in Republican Orange County. Because, and I'll give it away, it could be a template for winning back small towns and rural America. So we're going to get Gustavo's take, and welcome to Jacobin Radio, Gustavo. Gracias for having me, Susie. Ah, de nada. Es un placer. Okay, so what are the most important races in California this primary, and the ones that, uh, first of all, could help the Democrats capture the House in California? Yeah, the, the ones that are getting the most attention, of course, are in my neck of the woods, Orange County, Dana Rohrbacher, evil dumb, gross Dana Rohrbacher is fighting for the first time ever for his seat against a former Republican-turned-corporate Democrat named Harley Ruda. And then there's a couple of other races in Orange County, actually all of them. So they've been getting national, international attention even. Just this month alone, I've been interviewed by uh, reporters from Switzerland and from Spain. But what I argued is that the more important races, they're probably not going to be won this year, at least on the congressional side, but they're all happening right now in the Central Valley in California. 
before we go there, do you think that the attention's on Orange County because it's Dana Rohrabacher? I'm talking about Sweden and Samoa and Spain and not Samoa, really. <laughs> but why is the attention there? And then there's also the race in Newhall, and isn't that Simi Valley? What's happening in those places that makes international and, let's say, national attention there rather than in the place that we're going to discuss next? Well, Orange County, obviously, because that's a place uh, Reagan said all the good Republicans go to die. It's where the Repu- it's in the land of Nixon. It's where Barry Goldwater, he famously said when he got destroyed in the 64 election, he said, I only carried Arizona and Orange County. This is the land of all the crazy Republicans. This is the land that ultimately sent Donald Trump to the White House. So even though that old Orange County has not existed for a good 15 years and really for 20 years, its symbolic value is still really important. And if the Democrats not only pick up those seats and help them take back Congress, but if they, if you could say the Democrats now run Orange County on the congressional level, it is such a huge, symbolic, psychic victory for the Democrats. After that, they could go basically anywhere and they could accomplish basically anything. Okay, well, that's very encouraging. Let's move, <laughs> you know, to the other side, I guess, of L.A. and go up Highway 99, as you say. And what is it that is there that you say, first of all, is competitive and why people everywhere should be paying attention to those races? What's going on, let's not forget that Orange County is still mostly wealthy white suburbanites in terms of the voters, the people who are being affected. So the stuff that you're getting from the Democratic candidates, look, I like them all. I think they should all win. I don't know if they're all going to win, but maybe one or two of them will. But they're talking about health care. They're talking about being against Trump. They're not really pushing any truly progressive agenda because uh, white suburbanites really don't want a truly progressive agenda. On the other hand, what's going on in high Highway 99, for people who don't know what the Central Valley is, it's also it's technically known as San Joaquin Valley, but it's basically the fruit basket of the United States. This is where so many crops are grown year-round in the United States. And whenever you have farmland, it's a rural area, which means you're going to have farmers who, you know, and growers who are some of the most ruthlessly capitalistic people on the planet. You're also going to have a lot of human misery with all this farm labor being exploited. And this, though, is where you have the opening for Democrats to establish a truly progressive foothold, because if you could win against those farmers, then you could really win anywhere. In my column, I I hearken back to actually in a previous column where I talked about the rise of union power in California in the past couple of years, I hearken back to the 1930s of the Great Depression, where you had citrus workers going on strike, where you had cotton growers growing on strike. That's where uh, Kerry McWilliams, the former editor of The Nation, that's where he got radicalized, just right. seeing all this brutality going on. And so wrote the that Democrats- brilliant book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah, factories in the field. Mm. And, and so if the Democrats are making inroads this year, they're definitely not going to win any. Uh, maybe they'll win the race against Jeff Denham, except there's not going to be a Latino running. But on the state assembly and state Senate levels, they're mostly running Latinos, and those Latinos are most likely going to win. So if they could win in those rural districts, what I argue is that the Democrats could learn from their message, which is a more radical message than what's being uh, put out there in Orange County, and they could take it to Trump's America. Let's go back for just a minute and explain for everybody, you know, for those who are listening outside of California, 
California or just don't pay attention to that whole part of California that you say looks much more like the rest of middle America, the heartland, and not like the coastal cities. And who's representing them now? I know we have Devin Nunez, and he's kind of like the face of evil for a lot of people. (laughs) But why are Republicans continually elected there? And what is the sort of breakdown of the population in terms of ethnicity, in terms of class, all of that? It's the Deep South all over again. It's a feudal state. There's a very famous book called The King of California talking about the rise of cotton in California, in specifically in the Central Valley in the first half of the 20th century. And there were Southerners. There were segregationists, those people who came directly from the South and reestablished the South. Uh, let's not forget the Okies who ended up in Bakersfield, Modesto, Visalia, and all that. Those Okies were racist as hell as well. And so you have what passed as a white cult, not white culture so much, as, but what passed as society was really transplanted deep Midwest and deep South society. That got reestablished in California in, in a way that's different from the rest of the state from the 1930s onward. So those are the corridors of power, or those are the people who hold power right now. However, the population itself, it's almost like 40% Latino. It's, it's like the state of California. It's mostly Latino, but it's a Latino class that it's just getting its political power big undocumented population because, hello, it's all farmland, and that's what these hypocritical farmers rely on, undocumented labor. And if most people who pay any attention at all, you know, mostly hear about how the water was shut off and it caused a lot of unemployment, and you've got the growers who are pissed off with Washington under the Obama period because they said the environmentalists cut off their water. Does that play at all in this race, or is that something that's no longer happening? It played more under Obama because, hello, we have a black man in the White House, so it's easy to throw anything at him. And also at that point, though, California was going through a record-breaking drought. The drought is still pretty much in effect in California, but, you know, it rained a lot last year. It's supposed to rain a lot again this year. So th- that issue is not really in effect. I mean, what's going on right now, I mean, with the exception of Nunez, of course, who's campaigning as being Trump's lapdog and is probably going to win, although he's really getting a run for his money through uh, his challenger, former Fresno prosecutor. The rest of it is really just the usual, oh, we're bringing jobs, uh, we're trying to take care. Jeff Denham, by his own admission, represents one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. And so for him, it's more about like, even though I'm not Latino, I'm trying to take care of all of you and I'm trying to bring jobs in there. (laughs) But let's not forget what those jobs are. Those jobs are agriculture. And agriculture is always going to rely on cheap labor at best, undocumented labor, most likely. So and that's a great thing, especially on the state assembly and state senate level, is a lot of those Latinos, they grew up in that environment. A lot of these biographies talk about how their parents worked in the field, so they know the horrors of the field, and they also know that they don't want their generation or the next generation to grow up in that same feudal society. So for the listeners, we're talking about the area that goes from Bakersfield to Fresno and in between, right? It's Kern County and others. Oh, oh, going all the way, I mean, really up to Modesto, if, if we really want to be accurate mm-hmm. and really extending up to Sacramento but Central Valley all goes actually all the way up to Redding so it's a 500 and some mile stretch but when we talk about the heart of the Central Valley yeah it's going up to Modesto those are the most conservative of conservative districts and, the reddest of the red and you called it you know you said think of the deep south and see it here maybe there's a lot of similarities but why is it that Latinos have not been you know an important voting block there before is it because they weren't citizens Well, because you had power, uh, the power of the white folks there, and white folks never try to give up 
they have to be dragged, kicking, and screaming into giving up any power. Right. Kern County, uh, where Bakersfield is a county seat, they're just going to implement district elections for the Board of Supervisors this mm. year. So this is something that Latinos have been fighting for representation going back to the late uh, 1980s. You had uh, Joaquin Avila, uh, who just died this year. He was a man who thought of the idea of suing municipalities for district elections to get more Latinos. And he came from Salinas, from the Salinas area, which is technically not the Central Valley, but basically right next to it. Right. So, Gustavo Ariana, let's go into who the candidates are that we're talking about. I'm talking about on the Democratic side, the challengers. What kind of Democratic politics do they represent? Are they Democratic socialists? You know, who are they? Remember, this is still the Central Valley, so they're not going to be so bold as to proclaim the, you know, wave the banner of socialism just yet. But that said, they are talking the right fight about abolish ICE, about getting, you know, amnesty for undocumented folks, about fighting for folks under DACA, about getting more wage equity onto the field because, you know, or just getting more jobs. And really, I mean, it it goes down to economics and, and what they're arguing for because they know that the majority of their constituents, they still are tied to agriculture. And in a time also of climate change, they are uh, advocating for either, you know, carbon taxes or better yet get off of fossil fuel because they're the ones who are seeing climate change almost immediately, not just in lower water, but what's also happened, these farmers, because they still wanted to have the same amount of water, they started pumping water out of the ground, which has made parts of the Central Valley sink as much as 20 feet in just these past couple of years. So they're seeing climate change up front, ravages of capitalism up front. They're not going to be able to talk about socialism too much just yet, but they're definitely fellow travelers in that sense. Right. And so, and these are all the very key bread and butter issues, but also much more important, especially now that we have, you know, the report from the scientists saying that basically we have about, what, 12 years to fix the environment? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, 2030. Yeah. So, All right, let's go back then and name some of these people and tell us a little bit about their background. You do this in your L.A. Times piece that appeared this week that calls the spotlight might be on the O.C., but Democrats are building for the long haul in Central Valley. Who are the people we should be paying attention to? And maybe we'll go into as well their constituency of support, for example, are the young people, the millennials all leaning toward them or is there it's more of a class divide? Well, you, you have a little bit of both. I can't remember the names just yet, but I know their districts very well. So, for instance, there's a young Puerto Rican woman. She's running against Kevin McCarthy, probably the second most evil wow. person from the Valley. Yeah. And, yeah, she has no. She has very little chance of winning. That's Tatiana Mata? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mata, okay. yeah, Mata, Mata is the last name. And, you know, she, she admits she has very little chance of winning, but for her, it's not about her winning. It's really about putting the, the face of Latinas out there and showing the rest of the world that, yeah, we can run against evil people like McCarthy. And, you know, if I'm not going to win this time around, then we have the next generation after me. You have state assembly members, you know, former council members in Bakersfield who are now running for state assembly. You have in the Salinas Valley, you have a, a veteran, uh, Ana Caballero, who's actually uh, served before in the state assembly. Now she's running for the state senate, and she's arguing, well, look, I'm now, like, I think she's in her late 50s, early 60s, and she's inspired to run again in the year of the woman because of the all, you know, Kavanaugh and so much more and Me Too. And that's what I argued as well in my Times piece is that you need those young people who are talking about wage equity and suing a former teacher in Fresno. She's now an instructor, but she sued Fresno because she realized that 
as a woman, she was getting paid less than her male counterparts, and that case is going through court, but she's also running for Congress. Yeah, and well. that's Eileen Riso, and she's a math yeah, educator. Yeah, Eileen Riso, not, not, not Congress, sorry, State Assembly as yeah, well. Yeah, and that's the 23rd District, and that's really, I'm just naming it so people know. But just to go back for a second to Tatiana Mata, the Puerto Rican who's running from, as you say, a place called Rosamond, is <laughs> yeah. taking on the wannabe House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, in the 23rd Congressional District. And how does it play in the Central Valley when you have Kevin McCarthy and others saying um, that they're going to protect, you know, DACA, and then they vote to, like he voted, to fund Trump's wall? Does that, isn't that something he should have been worried about? Oh, my God, yeah. In, in my column, I actually cited a great Mother Jones piece from this month from Tom Philpott, one of my favorite reporters, always does good stuff, especially about food justice. But he interviewed the former student body president of Fresno State, and he gave this great anecdote that last decade, the guy, uh, the Fresno State student body president, goes out to Washington, talks to Devin Nunes, who promises him, yes, I'm going to vote for, you know, back then it was the DREAM Act, so right. I'm going to vote for the DREAM Act. And this time around, Nunes won't even give the student the time of day. So the student, even though he's undocumented, he's uh volunteering for the California Federation of Labor in Get Out the Vote campaigns. Now, obviously, they can't endorse candidates, but they can go out to get people to vote. There's another youth group, 99 Roots, with a Z, of course, named after Highway 99, that's specifically geared to get millennials, even the Generation Z at this point, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, anyone to just get interested in voting via social media campaigns. And they're making that same argument that we are the people who are going to inherit the Central Valley. The previous generation, especially the Republicans, they've left us into what the Central Valley is today, which is code for uh, misery in California. Well, we're not miserable people. We have hope. We want to run, and we're going to get out the vote to do that. And, and, you know, frankly, this is what I've been telling the Republican Party my entire life, as long as I've been politically conscious. They could have had all these Latino votes. They could have played on the social conservatism, especially in those rural areas, especially among immigrant voters. But because instead they decided to go with Pete Wilson, and the former governor of California, and his xenophobic train, a train that Trump rode all the way to the White House, they are spelling their own doom. Maybe not in the 2018 elections or even 2020 elections, but for sure very, very soon. Well, let's just talk just finally, Gustavo Ariana, about that, because you say, you know, that journalists uh, to find the true story this year should drive up Highway 99. And of course, you give them food tips to stop <laughs> at La Michoacana Bakery and get some video. But also what makes this, as you say, the possible template for the rest of rural and small town America? You can't get more rural than the Central Valley. You can't get more small town than the Central Valley. You cannot get more working class than the Central Valley. And the Central Valley is majority Latino at this point. So it's, you get those same arguments and you spread it. And let's not forget, Latinos are now all over small town America. In many right. ways, Latinos are saving small town America. I do a lot of food journalism in the South with Mexican restaurants. And I've seen them. I'm, we're talking about the deep South, upstate in Atlanta, around yeah. Alabama, in North Carolina, and these Mexicans are coming in, and they're saving these small towns. And with you know, with what's happening in the Valley, I think the Democrats could really learn a lesson. And you know, as much as I like what's going on with Ocasio and all the other Democratic young Democratic socialists, they're winning in urban areas. Urban areas are far, far different from rural areas. Maybe the urban candidates are still a little bit too um, not ready for prime time just yet. But if you mesh 
then with what's going on in Central California, I really think you could have a winning formula, not just for the Democrats, but for democratic socialism, for sure, or for, at the very least, more progressive ideas to uh, make this country better. Final question, Gustavo Arellano. You mentioned that if not for 2018 or 2020, maybe, you know, down the road, but are there any races in particular right now in the next three weeks that you think might tip over to the Democratic side? I don't know. I mean, Orange County's crazy. I really didn't think any of them would win this year. I still am not sure about Dana Rohrbacher because, yes, the polls might have Harley Root ahead, but people don't know how racist and horrible Huntington Beach is. And so just watch out for them. They're like a copperhead snake. They'll just come out and bite you out of nowhere. But um, I think at least with Orange County, I mean, I, I focus mostly on Orange County. I really think Orange County might take two seats at least. In the Central Valley, Jeff Denham will probably lose his seat, but Nunez and the other idiot, David Valadao, they're definitely going to win. But just take a look at those state assembly and state senate seats in the Central Valley. If the Democrats are able to make headway there, that portends very well for the future of the Democrats. And if not, hey, at least we're having these conversations. These were conversations I could never imagine having. So that's definitely a step in the right direction. Gustavo Orellana, thank you so much for being with us today on Jacobin Radio. And for all of the people who are listening, go out and read his books, Ask a Mexican or Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. And look for Gustavo's op-ed pieces in the L.A. Times. And where else are you writing these days? Oh, everyone. Uh, Anyone and everyone. Hey, maybe one day I'll write for Jacobin. Okay, perfect. And we'll be there for you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Gustavo. Gracias. De nada. Ciao. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Matthew Aaron Richmond with us for the first time. He's a visiting fellow at the Latin American Caribbean Center, London School of Economics, and research associate at the Centro de Estudios de Metropole. I didn't pronounce that right, I'm sure, at Sao Paulo (laughs) University. (laughs) And he writes on urban inequality and housing security and politics, and focuses on the favelas and urban peripheries. And it was the article that that Matthew has in Jacobin that caught my eye. And we're going to talk a lot about the election. So let me just say that the second and final round of the Brazilian election is to be held on October 28th, and it's pitting the far-right Jair Bolsonaro against the PT or the Workers' Party, Fernando Haddadje. And Matthew, I should say, is in Sao Paulo. He's sitting in a cafe, and I've asked him to help us to have a deeper look at Bolsonaro's constituencies of support. And the article in Jacobin is called Bolsonaro's Conservative Revolution, and it looks at the core support and the base for Bolsonaro's extreme far-right politics. Now, many of you have probably seen the Elenao movement. It's kind of like a Me Too movement of people who are absolutely horrified by the fact that this very far-right candidate is winning. And in this article, uh, Matthew says that the core support does lie with wealthy Brazilians, but it's really important to understand that he would not have gotten this far if he didn't also have a base among the poor. And so we're going to look at the reasons for that. Now, before we start there, I just want to say, no doubt, the most striking result of your research into this electoral support is this very striking degree of support 
of the poor and the very poor, including people of color for Bolsonaro and the defection of these same layers from the PT, so as you report. So maybe we could just begin with that. Describe the constituencies and maybe we can kind of get a baseline of comparison. Sure. So I think the starting point is to say that obviously it's the predominantly white upper and, and middle classes who are the core base of Bolsonaro's support. But that on its own wouldn't be sufficient for him to be making the kind of inroads he is with the electorate. He, he really needs to expand way beyond that and start to reach into the lower income groups. Um, and he's been very successful at that in the last few months. But in my research, I've kind of perceived a growing interest in the kind of politics that he represents over the last. I've been, been conducting field work in peripheral uh, lower income areas in Brazil, specifically in, in the two largest cities in the country, in, in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, since 2012. And I've been able to detect a kind of interest in the kind of policies he represents growing over the course of that period. Um, these are two large cities which are, by Brazilian standards, wealthy. So even the people living in the in the peripheries of these cities are, by Brazilian standards, at least um, on average, kind of not poor by national standards. And you see that kind of holds up when you look at the, the map nationally of, of support. It is the poorest regions in the northeast and north of the country that are still consistently backing the, the PT, who have kind of held firm against Bolsonaro's wave to date. But in Sao Paulo, for example, where I am right now, the peripheries of the city have overwhelmingly voted in favour of Bolsonaro. There were only four districts in the in the in Sao Paulo proper, the municipality that had a marginal preference for Abaji, but the vast majority of the peripheries have voted for Bolsonaro. So there's something going on in terms which I see as being very essential and, and under recognized in, in a lot of the analyses about Brazil, which is that there are large numbers of lower income voters very interested in the kinds of politics that Bolsonaro represents, or at least what they think his politics are. Well, before we go there, I want to just go back and stress just for a second the exception, because the Northeast is an exception, and there you see the support for the PT. And can you explain that? Is there a reason for that, as compared to, say, the rest of the country? Sure. So, I mean, it's a part of the country that is historically, for a long time, has been the poorest region in the country. If you think of Brazil in terms of kind of centers and peripheries at a national scale, it's these are parts of the country, the north and, and northeast, that historically have been sources of raw materials that have then been exported from the country, usually via these kind of more coastal regions and wealthier regions in the southeast. So there's a kind of internal kind of inequality and related to kind of the, the Brazilian capitalism. So that's a kind of historical fact. But these regions very much swung behind, not initially actually, the PT began as a movement predominantly in Sao Paulo and, and, the, and the southeast and south, but actually as soon as the PT got into government, they started to really take over and, and dominate the elections in the northeast, especially, and also the north, which is a more kind of Amazon region, more, more kind of rural, but also largely poor population, and so they became the dominant electoral force in those regions. And part of the reason for that is that they've, during their time in power, introduced very important social policies that had a huge impact on the lives of people in those regions. The most famous one of those is Bolsa Familia, um, which is a kind of, it's a kind of rudimentary welfare system, conditional cash transfer system, where low-income families, if they ensure that their children are 
attending school and going for regular health checkups receive a, a weekly stipend, which helps them to, to get by. And if you look at levels of how many, the proportion of the population that receives those kind of benefits in the Northeast, it's much higher than it is in the Southeast. So in the Northeast, it's something like a third of the population receives some kind of transfer, state transfer, whereas in the Southeast, it's, I don't have the figures in front of me, but it's something around 10%. So that, that's probably quite a significant factor in, in thinking about why it is that a, a poor person in the Northeast is still likely to vote for the PT, whereas a, someone we, we would consider poor, at least by the standards of the Southeast, but maybe nationally a, a, a little bit less so, are now very much swinging or seem to be shifting away from the PT. One of the things that you say in your article, I mean, you start out right away, and even former PT supporters attack the Bolsa Familia, and that's going on all the time, and affirmative action. But we would expect that perhaps, you know, from the wealthier and the upper middle classes, but not from the poor. And I wanted to ask you to kind of, in your article, you go over where that support is among the poor, and you talk about, I guess, 51% of voters earning between 5 and 10 minimum wages and 44%. I guess you better explain this. I don't know if you have all the numbers in front of you, <laughs> but I think they're really revealing, and it would be good for the uh, listeners to hear a little bit about the breakdown of those who are supporting Bolsonaro and how much they earn and all of that. Sure. So I, I'm afraid of that the exact numbers in front of me, but uh, I mean, you can, you can really see very clearly that his support in terms of the proportion of different social groups. So the, the way that in Brazil the income levels are, are calculated in terms of minimum salaries. So this is the income of the per capita income of a household per month, essentially. And a minimum salary, it's, it's a measurement, it's an indicator of, is used for all kinds of things in Brazil, is uh, adjusted every year. And at the moment it's around $250 is, a, is one minimum salary, which is I suppose considered the kind of a really base poverty line, although living slightly above it, up to two or three minimum salaries, you're still having quite a lot of trouble getting by in your day-to-day -day life. So if you look at people with 10 or more or five to 10 minimum salaries, there's overwhelming support for Bolsonaro. These are, of course, you know, there's inevitably differences of opinion. There's, there's kind of more left-leaning upper and middle classes, professionals, more kind of people, for example, you know, universities, very traditionally centers of, of kind of left-wing activism and thought. And, you know, you do get more left-leaning PT supporting or, you know, the wider left, there are, there are parties to the left of the PT who are also, you know, very strongly supported by some elements of the upper middle and middle classes. Um, but they're very much a minority. This Bolsonaro has, has basically received overwhelmingly the upper income population who have been traditionally have never really reconciled themselves to PT government and have become have kind of conceived against the PT ever since, since it was elected in 2002 and ever since kind of crisis struck around 2014 2015 have radicalized and increasingly moved to the right and away from the the, the center-right party the PSDB which traditionally had been the home of of opposition to the PT and, and the most viable alternative. The P PSDB has kind of lost its credibility with, with this population because of its own involvement in corruption scandals and its apparent failure to kind of launch a platform that was a viable uh, electoral alternative to the PT. So essentially this population has, has entirely now 
overwhelmingly move towards Bolsonaro. Before we go deeper into the defection of the elite and the others who would normally be voting for more traditional right-wing parties to Bolsonaro, I want to go back just for a second and concentrate on the Bolsa Familia, because it's really, I guess, shocking in a way that is the defection of the poor from the PT, not in the Northeast, but at least they seem to be open to the attack by Bolsonaro forces on the Bolsa Familia. And I think in your article, you begin with, uh, you know, some of the interviews where people just say, well, yeah, the petistas are all bandits. And so corruption is a big, big issue. But for the most part, these politics go against their own material interest. So I want to know, like, first of all, like, how the Bolsa Familia, you know, came about in Lula's uh, building of electoral support for the PT and where that is now. I mean, we do hear, of course, since they did this boldly anti-democratic, corrupt thing of, you know, jailing Lula and he was still polling way ahead and Hadadji in his place even puts the face of Lula behind him to remind people that's where he's coming from. Maybe you could just explain a little bit how all of this somehow got turned around by Bolsonaro and people aren't voting in their own interests or saying they will. Yes, I mean, in my own my own research, I've heard kind of anti-Bolsonaro sentiment quite kind of consistently in, in, the, in the interviews that I carry out. That is definitely, in my view, quite a strong kind of strain of opinion among lower income groups in cities like Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. In the Northeast, I think it's less so because it's such an important aspect of kind of income for such a large part of the population. So even if you don't necessarily receive it, you know people who do and you're perhaps more inclined to, to be sympathetic to their situation. In the Southeast, I suppose it's more of a, a kind of residual population in the Southeast and, and South of the country. I think lower income people maybe are more likely to adopt the kind of attitudes that maybe we would be familiar with in, in the US or in, in my country in the UK of, you know, the kind of uh, anti-welfare, mm-hmm. uh, kind of welfare queen type rhetoric of people who don't want to work and just want to kind of get by relying on the state. That's a kind of attitude that I've seen. It's not universal, but it's quite common among lower income groups and it's something that doesn't really translate that clearly into the political debate. You still hear politicians, because the Northeast is such an important region, making kind of gestures. In Bolsonaro is a bit worried about saying he's going to cut both family altogether. He still talks about, oh, you know, we're not, we're going to be tougher clamping down on fraud or abuses, but he doesn't say that we're going to get rid of it altogether because that's a, still a bit of a, a no-no in Brazilian politics to say that kind of thing, although he certainly thinks it and his, a lot of his supporters would like to hear him say that. Let's just stay with that for a minute because, and maybe you could explain just very briefly, we hear horror stories about Bolsonaro. Some people have compared him and say he's Brazil's Trump. I would say he's far to the right of that. You know, he's far, far to the right of that. And even though I guess you would expect that he would have a small constituency, it's perhaps surprising to see the traditional right wing going toward him. And is it something about Temer's rule that made them want to just forget the center right and move to the very far right? Can you explain a little bit about that? And then after that, I want to go back to the poor and to the factors that you raise in your article in Jacobin about uh, security and, and the role of the evangelical churches. But let's first just go back for a second to the defection of the elite to Bolsonaro from their usual support for more center-right parties or traditional right. Yes, I think that the Temer government and the involvement of the PSDB, the traditional center-right or 
struggle sometimes to call them centre-right, the mainstream right, <laughs> traditional yeah, right-wing right. party, as a viable kind of alternative in government. They've been decimated as, as the PT whereby association with corruption scandals, obviously there's a lot of allegation and and sometimes more, sometimes less evident. But it became unsustainable to make the claim as a lot of, you know, kind of right-wing, wealthier Brazilians wanted to for a long time that the corruption was purely a, a PT problem. And that as soon as the PT were out of government, the problems would be over. And also the fact that, you know, Temer's austerity program has been a failure. Growth has not returned. Unemployment has not significantly come down. People are still suffering a lot and a lot of anger. So, you know, I think there's a sense that the mainstream right had its chance. It failed. And actually now we, you know, for these people, the only alternative is to is to move further to the right and try out some more extreme measures. It seems to Matthew Richmond that the car wash scandal has shown that corruption is the name of the game in the Brazilian Congress and that everybody was involved, you know, and then also that all the branches of government from the judiciary to the Congress are all have their own sort of uh, what I guess their own kind of corruption. So that's understandable. But superficially, it looks like the way that you describe People who go to the traditional, who are normally supporters of the traditional right, moving to the far right, it looks somewhat like the defection of German big capital and the lead away from the traditional parties of the right to the Nazis in the early 30s. Is that the case or am I, you know, being a little extreme? Using the term Nazi is always a kind of emotive. I would see no problem with calling with calling Bolsonaro a neo-fascist. And the definition I would use to, for that is essentially that he wants to use political violence to suppress alternative voices to his own and to that of his party. I mean, that, that's at least what his discourse says. Looking at the, you know, the likelihood now of a Bolsonaro government, you know, obviously there's still a week to go, but he's firmly in the lead. We're going to see that tested. But, you know, his pronouncements are all about, you know, kind of conducting violence against his political enemies and against certain parts, you know, vulnerable and kind of easily scapegoatable parts of the population. It's the violence in his rhetoric as well as the kind of the prejudice that I think really maybe distinguishes him somewhat from someone like Trump who likes to kind of dog whistle, not even dog whistle, openly kind of show sympathy with, with far-right ideas but doesn't stray into the same kind of, you know, violent imagery that Bolsonaro does, saying that the PT need to be machine-gunned, that Brazil's military dictatorship should have killed 30,000 people more, and that was why it, it failed. You know, this is the kind of language he uses, and it's very, very worrying. One of the things that you end the article with, and I think this is just the last thing that I'll ask you, Matthew Richmond, is that the growth of uh, right-wing evangelical churches in Brazil has been a factor, as well as the incumbency and corruption sort of throw out all the bums, you know. But also you raise the issue that you just did now about violence. And even though Bolsonaro promises a lot of violence, kind of like Duterte, I guess, what people are seeking, you say, are security because they live in such violent communities. And that there has been this, you know, sort of open, I guess, covert but not so covert paramilitary war against the poor. That's a reality. And you say it's against drug traffickers and proletarian criminals, as you say, and that it's supported this war. So maybe we could just sort of end with that, those factors as, you know, leading to the support for somebody as horrible as Bolsonaro. Sure. So, I mean, the the growth of evangelical churches has been really huge. Brazil is traditionally, still is, I believe, the largest 
Catholic country in the world. It has the most Catholics of any country. And yet, in a country of 210 million people, now probably over a quarter are defined as evangelicals. So they go to neo-Pentecostal churches, similar to, you know, a lot of the, the kind of more um, recent uh, U.S. kind of forms of Pentecostalism. And these are very influential in the kinds of areas where I do my research in, in urban peripheries, which are spaces which often lack important kind of spaces for people to assemble and take part in cultural activities and have choirs and, and social events. And so they've, they've managed to kind of fill a space in these communities and become very kind of important social hubs, which, of course, is, a, is, a, is something that, that, people, that people want and need in these places. But then, of course, what comes with that is a particular kind of set of ideas and also a kind of political organization that has been quite effective at getting people to vote for very conservative candidates to the Congress and to push a very reactionary agenda in terms of particularly of, of LGBT and, and women's rights. My personal view, based on my research, is that a lot of the population who attends these churches is not particularly radical on the kinds of questions that the so-called evangelical caucus in the Congress pursues. So I think that maybe their influence is slightly over by their ability to kind of push forward their agenda in Congress. But it's still something that, that is that is quite significant in these lower income areas. But for me, the the really, really key issue that I think gets a lot of people behind Bolsonaro is the question of security. And they're perhaps less interested in his violent rhetoric towards his political rivals, which I mentioned before, like the PT, but very, very often receptive to the kinds of languages he uses about criminals. Um, and these are people who live in neighborhoods where there is a lot of uh, organized crime, kind of drug trafficking gangs are often quite dominant. And people, I think a lot of people are kind of fed up with the state's inability to kind of provide public security. And so when Bolsonaro comes comes in and says, police need to shoot to kill, ask questions afterwards, Um, we need to increase the prison population, we need to lower the age of adult responsibility for criminal acts. A lot of people are, are quite receptive to that. And I think that in a very violent society, sadly, violent political rhetoric can often seem quite sensible to people who have to live with kind of daily insecurity. It's amazing. And I want to thank you for that and for your article. I think you also say that one of the you know striking things is that people want security and they look to the far right tough talk of a Bolsonaro to give it to them. And at the same time, he's going to have as a finance minister, if he wins, uh, a Chicago boy who will push to give the elite everything that they want. I guess, finally, you seem resigned to the fact of a Bolsonaro victory. The final question would be, what kind of movement do you think will grow up against it or is already there protesting all along the way? Well, I think we're starting to see the beginnings of it with with the Elinor movement, which you mentioned. Because of my particular interest in the kinds of political attitudes of lower-income people, I'm very interested in how it is that these kinds of populations who feel very excluded, who feel very alienated by politics in general and disappointed in the PT, who a lot had seen as kind of different from the other parties and, and I think now maybe have had those hopes kind of dashed somewhat of how it is that they can be 
persuaded that Bolsonaro does not represent the answer to them. Um, and I think that this question that you just mentioned of, of the complete, the directly opposed economic interests of these people with those of Bolsonaro's core support in the upper and middle classes um, has to be a real focus of, of where the left tries to rebuild and trying to ensure that if and when Bolsonaro comes to power and if and when he's able to push through even more radical reforms than Temer has been able to because he'll have a more he'll have a stronger position in Congress than, than Temer was was able to, to build, that the left makes it entirely clear and gets this message across that this is the direct and deliberate result. The greater suffering they will feel from their pensions being slashed, from their work protections being slashed, that this is direct result of an elitist political program, that they stop seeing Bolsonaro as someone who maybe is on their side, who maybe is going to be trying to protect them and start to see him as actually their oppressor. And I think that that's, you know, trying to split this very diverse political coalition that he's been able to build in, in a short space of time, but one that is full of contradictions and full of potential divisions. I think it's very important that the left start rebuilding by trying to win back the trust of, of lower-income people. And that's, that's an important way in which they can do that. I want to thank you so much, Matthew. Aaron Richmond for joining us on Jacobin Radio today. Look for his articles on Jacobin. The latest is Bolsonaro's Conservative Revolution. There's a lot of others. And thanks for taking time out and finding a quiet place in a cafe in Sao Paulo. Thanks very much, Susie. Thank, pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.